Kale Clark here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. Mention offer code relevant radio and get a free phone. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to Tuesday. This is Kale Clark. I am so happy that you're with me on the program. It's the last day of February. 888 914 9149 is the number to call. Toll free to talk to me. 888-914-9149. You can also email the program. The address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. We certainly pray for everybody who emails us, and we love to hear your comments and questions. You can also find me on Twitter, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And tonight we're going to talk about the 90s. A lot of you guys remember the 90s. For some of you, it's your favorite decade of your life, of recent history. What is your favorite decade? Is it the 60s? Is it the 70s? Is it, is it the 80s? Is it the 90s? Is it the 2000s? Is it the aughts, as it were, the 20-teens? I, I guess it's it's too early in the 2020s for it to be your favorite decade, and so much has happened already. Uh, not, not, not much of it has been great, but there's been some good stuff, too, as there always is. But we'll talk about the 90s in particular, and I'll tell you why. In just a little bit, but I'd love to hear from you. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. I've got a cool graphic on my Twitter feed about this show at Kale Clark. If you want to check it out, thanks to John Henready for that. Very retro, very cool. And speaking of cool, I am freezing. My furnace shut down uh, a couple of days ago. I've been managing with space heaters, and I'm, I'm wearing a jacket right now. Got Mario, my HVAC guy, is on, is on the case, and so he's going to be uh, hooking me up with a, with a new unit. Uh, it always stinks to have to make these CapEx purchases, capital expenditures, but you got to do it every once in a while. Actually, my furnace was over 40 years old. I, it, I cannot even believe it lasted this long. But And I was like, oh, i got to try to get to the summer. If I can only get to the spring, I'll fix it then. Uh, I knew it you know, was kind of on its last legs. I, I pushed it too far, and here we are. So... It is the last day of February, not the not the optimal time for it to be breaking down. But uh, anyways, maybe you can uh, warm me up with your company, 888-914-9149. I might have to light uh, some of my books on fire. To, uh, to we, we, we never want to do any book burnings, that's for sure. But uh, speaking of books, we got to start off today. Before we get into the 1990s, let's get into our Lenten devotional for today, Memento Mori. Remember Your Death, the devotional by Sister Teresa Alethea Noble, one of the daughters of St. Paul. And this is kind of what I've chosen to do for each day of Lent on the show as appointment listening, if you will. And we're going to look at her entry for today, for Tuesday. And uh, we're going to look at, obviously, the readings for today. Uh, The first reading comes to us from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 55. A beautiful passage. And if you went to Mass today, or maybe you're going this evening afterwards, uh, you'll hear this. And it says this, In part, just as from the heavens the rain and snow come down and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it fertile and fruitful, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
but shall do what pleases me, achieving the end for which I sent it. So just as the rain and snow come down, we've seen a lot of that, of course, especially if you live in the northern part of the country or in a northern clime. There's rain and snow at this time of year, sometimes mixed together. It's kind of nasty. But whenever God sends forth his word, it always brings forth a harvest of fruitfulness, and it always achieves the end for which he sent it, cannot be thwarted. Well, here's what Sister Teresa Alethea Noble says about this. She says, quote, The prophet Isaiah describes a word that goes forth from the mouth of God like rain watering the earth. From the beginning, God watered the world, desiring that all within it be fruitful and full of life. But in our sin, we turned away from this life-giving water and embraced death. In our prideful need to control, we ran from the rain of the word to the desert oasis of death. Regardless of what we do, however, God continues to pour his saving word like rain upon the earth. God's goodness does not change, despite how we might behave. He makes his sun rise on the bad and on the good and causes rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5.45. Those, of course, are the words of Jesus. And let's continue on here. It says, Jesus describes himself as living water, John 4.10. He is the culmination of Isaiah's prophecy and God's salvific action in the world, who comes to us like the rain, like spring rain that waters the earth. Hosea 6.3. When the soldiers, when the soldier pierced uh, Jesus' side while he was hanging on the cross, blood and water poured out like rain. See John 19, verse 34. Some have speculated that both blood and water gushed forth from Jesus' side because the soldier's lance punctured Jesus' heart. The word of God, not satisfied with merely speaking his word of love, showered the earth with blood and water from his sacred heart. Christ's heart blood poured itself into our sinful hearts, bringing fruitfulness from dry ground. And, and I just want to stop here for one second. That is an actual medical condition uh, that occurs. Uh, some years ago, many, many years ago, there was a physician named Alexander Metherell who wrote a book basically all about what happened at the cross, what, what happened physically uh, to Jesus uh, during the ordeal of his passion, scourging, flogging, carrying of the cross, and his execution. And when, when the heart is under tremendous stress, there can be sort of a sac that, that forms around the heart with, with fluid in it. And essentially what happened was when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus with the lance, it did pierce his heart. He was already dead, but this was the, the coup de grace to prove that he was dead. Blood and water flowed forth, which would have been an actual medical condition, a pericardial effusion, I believe it's called. And so that, that would have been the appearance to John at the foot of the cross. Anybody who was standing at a distance watching it would have looked like blood and water coming out. And of course, that is emblematic of the two sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. And of course, in the Divine Mercy image, something that we pray every day on Relevant Radio, 3 p.m. Central, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, of course, that, that famous image, uh, Sister Faustina was commanded uh, by Jesus to to have commissioned has of course those two rays coming forth from the side of Christ representing essentially the same thing and, and ultimately his mercy uh, communicated through those sacraments communicated through his grace let's go back to Sister Teresa she says quote Christian meditation 
on death is most profitable when we make when we when we make efforts to continually accept the rain of God's grace that pours itself into our hearts through the sacraments. St. John Chrysostom observed that the blood and water that gushed from Jesus Christ's dying body are symbols of the gift of the sacraments to the church. How could we ignore these intimate gifts in our lives? Baptism, the Eucharist, the sacrament of reconciliation, and anointing of the sick particularly help our souls, dry and desiccated by sin, to become vibrant once again. The early church father Tertullian once compared Christians to little fishes because we are born in the waters of baptism. When we feel like we're plodding through the sands of the desert instead of swimming in the waters of God's grace, we can always ask the Holy Spirit to well up in our hearts. God never tires of our return. Time and again, the waters of God's grace wash over our stony, deadened hearts, turning them to living hearts of flesh. The steady reign of God's grace in our hearts helps us to live well on this earth and will lead us to springs of life-giving water in heaven, as it says in Revelation 7, verse 17, end of quote. And that's true. As Tertullian says, we, Christians are like little fishes because we were born in the waters of baptism. And the symbol of the fish was a, a sign by which early Christians recognized one another. And they would often dry the image of that fish in the sand to sort of say, hey, are you one of us? Or can I trust you? Because, of course, it was very dangerous to be a believer in Jesus Christ in the early centuries, and it is so much so today in, in many parts of the world. So as we think about this, it is true that memento mori, remember your death, and many are spiritually dead right now because of mortal sin, but it is the sacraments that can bring us alive once again, that can symbolically raise us from the dead, especially the sacrament of reconciliation. We can become vibrant, as Sister Teresa says, alive once again. And all this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And one thing that she suggests in her book for today, kind of as an action step, I encourage you guys to, to go get this book. Uh, I think it's a great Lenten devotional, Remember Your Death, by Sister Teresa Alethea Noble, Memento Mori. It's a Lenten devotional published by Pauline Books and Media, Pope Francis has often called the Holy Spirit the Forgotten One, the Forgotten One. And it's true, uh, others have referred to the Spirit as the Great Unknown. The Holy Spirit is <laughs> that person who, that divine person that we, we seem to, we kind of think like we have an understanding of God the Father and, and of course of Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit is hard to pin down for a lot of us. And I think we can this is a good thing to do this land. Try to get more in touch with the Spirit in our lives. And we can kind of forget about Him a little bit. And so Sister Teresa says, let's reflect on how much we call upon the Spirit and whether we could actually call upon Him more. She suggests maybe writing a prayer to the Holy Spirit to flood your heart and your life, begging for the Spirit to do so, to water that that dry ground. And that's a, that's a good thing to do. I think it's just a, a good thing to do in general to try to, and maybe you don't, you don't have to stick with this all the time, but I do think it's a good practice to journal your prayers, to write them out. Because when we do that, not only does it help us to kind of get our thoughts, our jumbled thoughts out on paper, it can kind of help us make sense a little bit of what we're asking God for. But also, also it's really nice to be able to look back 
in a prayer journal and say, man, that prayer was answered. I forgot that I even prayed that prayer. I would never have known had I not written it down. And it's a good testimony to the faithfulness of God to see the prayer is answered. It's always answered. It's either yes, no, or maybe not now, maybe wait. But there is always an answer to prayer because God loves us. He cares for his children. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now on the K.O. Clark Show, 888-914-9149. When I come back, as I promised, we're going to remember the 90s. going to remember the 90s. And what are the lessons that we can get from that decade? What was your favorite decade? Is it the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? Maybe another time. Maybe another time. And, and if so, what do you think we've lost that we, we used to have during that special time for you? 888-914-9149. It's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Be right back. Hi, this is Kale Clark. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Check out Charity Mobile and prayerfully consider making them your wireless carrier. They're a pro-life phone company and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to Relevant Radio or another pro-life charity of your choice. For a limited time, new customers who mention offer code Relevant Radio get a free phone with free activation and free shipping. Don't delay. CharityMobile.com. That's CharityMobile.com. Back to the Kale Clark Show. We're rocking out here to Nirvana. Smells like teen spirit and it smells like a good time to call. 888 914 9149 is the number to call. 888 914 9149. We're talking about the 90s. That decade that for a lot of you is your favorite. It was kind of a seminal decade for you, whether it's the music, the culture, that time in your life. Maybe it was a seminal time in your life growing up. If it is your favorite decade, and if you feel like we've lost something from the 90s, call in 888-914-9149. Or maybe your favorite decade is the 60s, or even maybe before that. The 70s, the 80s, the aughts, the 20-teens. Whatever your favorite decade is, I want to hear why and why you think life then was better than it is now. What we've lost, whether from a faith perspective or a cultural perspective, Call in, 888-914-9149. Now, why do I mention the 1990s? Well, Joel Miller, he's got a great, great substack, which is a, a newsletter that you can sign up for. It's called Miller's Book, Re- Book Review, and it's really, really good. Uh, so just, just Google that, search for that, and you will find it. And Joel Miller, who's also an author as well, he wrote a book about the revolutionary Paul Revere, uh, he reviews books every week, and, and they're really enlightening. I, I love reading his reviews, and it's really inspired me to read some of these books for myself. Great way to find out about some cool stuff that's out there. And he recently reviewed a book about the 1990s by Chuck Klosterman. And Chuck Klosterman's kind of a cultural commentator, and he's written a book called The 90s, a book. <laughs> and uh, Klosterman's written about sports. He's, he's uh, written for ESPN in the past and, and all kinds of outlets and it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting topic indeed. And Joel Miller starts off by saying that, hey, if my current self, he says, could go back to my teenage self and tell me that in a 2023 Super Bowl commercial, Sarah McLaughlin would appear using both her music and her wildlife advocacy to sell Bush beer, I wouldn't have believed it. 
I wouldn't have believed it. And Sir Mix-a-Lot as well, apparently. Ha- I, I didn't even see. I didn't even get to see all the Super Bowl commercials because in Canada, what happens is there's this kind of a, because of weird broadcasting arrangements, they actually don't show a lot of the Super Bowl commercials. They show Canadian commercials instead, which aren't nearly as exciting in most cases. So uh, it's just part of the broadcast agreement. So I have not seen. Now, after the game, they will put them out on YouTube and stuff like that, but I, I just haven't had time to, to watch them. So I, I didn't even see this, but producer Jim did tell me that he saw the Sarah McLaughlin Bush beer commercial. And, and that was that would have just been unimaginable in the 1990s because the 1990s was all about authenticity. Authenticity. Joel Miller says, quote, back then, rappers would trade insults, fists, and sometimes more dangerous projectiles over who appeared to have sold out. That's true. I think about what happened with the feud with Biggie and Tupac, right? Now, Sarah McLaughlin, he says, was a high priestess of a kind of music that def- that deified authenticity and feeling. Now, here's a clip from one of her most famous songs. In the arms of the angel, fly away from here, from this dark, cold hotel room, and the endless I couldn't resist doing a little karaoke over top, but producer Jim had a big crush, big crush on Sarah McLaughlin back in the day. And, and not Jimmy, true. Oh, come on. You know it's true. Not, <laughs> the, not voice, to quote Mi- the voice, for sure. Not to Very quote Millie Vanilli, but you know it's true. <laughs> Jim, you know it's true. Um, yeah, well, speak, by the way, by the way, interestingly enough, just sidebar here, Sarah McLaughlin grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is the area of the, of the country that I'm from. And I knew a guy who knew a guy, a friend of a friend. I didn't know this person, but... Apparently, Sarah McLaughlin asked this guy to go to the prom, and he, he said no. He turned her down. And now, of course, he probably regrets that because she became pretty pretty famous. And, and I don't, maybe he doesn't regret it. I have no idea. But apparently, she was, she was kind of, you know, kind of a, a different cat, if you will, uh, in, in high school, uh, kind of artsy and stuff, as you might imagine. But at any rate, um, she made quite a success of herself in the 1990s with the arms of an angel, and we've seen, of course, the tear-jerking commercials for for wildlife advocacy and adopting stray pets and all that stuff. And and apparently now Bush beer is part of her portfolio. But back in the '90s, again, this was not cool. This was not kosher because authenticity was what it was all about. Joel Miller says, "Quote: Why couldn't MC Hammer quit? Because he was too legit," which somehow made sense in 1991. Fakers were good for two things, a moment of ridicule and a lifetime of dismissal. Remember Millie Vanilli. Neither does anyone else except as scapegoats for the sin of lip-syncing their music and our gullibility and going along with it. You know it's true. Whenever I sing on the K.O. Clark Show, I am, it's, it is not a recording. It is, it is really my, my own terrible voice, so I will never shortchange you on the karaoke. But sincerity was all the rage in the 1990s. And this is what Chuck Klosterman really brings up in his book that uh, Joel Miller reviews on Miller's book review, The 90s. So 
it's interesting. He talks about how, how in the 1990s there were a lot of cults that were out there. Think about David Koresh, the Branch Davidians. Remember that? Waco, Texas, or some you know, terrible joke because it was, it was a great tragedy. They called it Waco, Texas. But Messiah figures, they're, they're not a new thing. There were many would-be Messiahs in Jesus' day. Most of them got killed by the Romans. And that, that has persisted. Uh, false messiahs are still around uh, to this very day. And so the Heaven's Gate cult, a lot of you guys remember that. But the most famous cult of all in the 1990s might have been what, what uh, Klosterman calls the cult of authenticity. Authenticity. So the 80s, the 80s was all about plastic, synthesizers, Wall Street greed, political scandal, Iran-Contra, and Americans were kind of tired of all that stuff by the time the 90s rolled around. According to Miller, they were looking for something simple, something true, something genuine, something sincere, even if it really wasn't. And so this is what a lot of music was all about, whether it was Nirvana, whether it was Sarah McLachlan, whether it was Pearl Jam. I think you've got some Pearl Jam, right, Jim? Seeing if he's quick. Seeing if he's quick. Yeah, I'm seeing how quick you are on the draw here. Let me know when you're ready to go. We we all know about Pearl Jam. There we go. Any better? Yeah. Okay, that was a song alive. Not gonna sing it. I'll spare you. I'll spare you. But authenticity. That was what it was all about when it comes to music in the 1990s. Commitment to craft, honesty, integrity, and. As Joel Miller says, if anybody had suspected that some of these artists would sell out their integrity for cash 30 years down the road, we would have immediately punched eject on the tape deck. Remember those things? And never looked back. And never looked back. So in the 1990s, there were a lot of things going on during that decade as well. The Cold War. We're kind of coming back to that now, aren't we? The first Gulf War the first terrorist bombing of the World Trade Center that happened before 9-11-2001. But Klosterman doesn't really talk too much about that uh, in his book. And I'll have to pick up this book, but when, when Miller reviewed it, he said that really this is only a, a tangent for Klosterman. What he was focused on in his book about the 1990s was what were our reactions to all those things, everything that was going on in the culture at that point. What did that reveal about us? What did that reveal about American values at that time? So apparently he doesn't talk about, he doesn't start off his book by talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall. He talks about Nirvana's Nevermind, which is a song that we played uh, on the intro here. He calls it the inflection point, where one style of Western culture ends and another begins. And, and so he sees this grunge band from Seattle, Nirvana, as they took the scene, and the fact that, tragically, Kurt Cobain, the lead singer, frontman of Nirvana, tragically committed suicide a few years later, some people see this as adding to his legend or somehow validating his music. But I don't think that's necessarily the way to look at this. But, again, this idea of being completely committed, completely sincere was everything. And if you wanted to be taken seriously by other people, 
that might be evidence, according to Miller, that you were not going to be taken seriously by others. And Alanis Morissette comes in, comes, comes into this as well because she had massive critical success with Jagged Little Pill. What in most people's minds would be incredibly raw and honest songwriting, whatever you might think about this. But Miller says that the listening public was ambivalent about Alanis Morissette. She was successful because of her honesty, according to Klosterman. But anyone that successful had to be lying. That's what that's what people thought. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but we, we've got an Alanis clip as well, right, Jim? I know I know Jim likes Alanis. I know that. Hey, Alanis, if you're listening, I could sing back up on the next tour. Yeah. By the way, another sidebar. Speaking of famous female singers and proms, I talked about a friend of a friend who rejected Sarah McLaughlin's offer to go to the prom with her. Alanis Morissette, Jim, was actually at my high school prom. I'm not kidding. Did you I'm not her? kidding. No, I, I never <laughs> met her. I, I, there was a lot of people. I went to a pretty big high school, thousands of kids. And anyways, they, they had the, the prom itself, like the, the dance in, in a hockey rink. And there were a lot of people there. But she was there. And at the time, now before she do, did this kind of music in the 1990s, she actually did pop dance music. And if you don't believe me, you can look it up. Uh, she had a song called Too Hot. I think it was called Too Hot. Anyways, check it out. Go to YouTube. Anyway, that, that was the stage she was in at that point. This was 1991 when I graduated high school. I'm dating myself here. but And she was, I don't know, she was on some sort of promotional tour or something, but she was really only known in Canada at the time. And I remember like hearing her voice over the loudspeakers. Hi, this is Alanis. Yeah, it's great to be here. Blah, blah, blah. Have a great prom. I never saw her. I didn't, I didn't really, wasn't really looking for her. Anyway, so she, she became who she is. She, she, she blew up in the 1990s. So... This is a, this is intriguing. Um, the fact that, as Klosterman says, any explicit desire for approval in the 1990s was enough to prove that you were terrible. End of quote. You just didn't. You weren't supposed to care about what people thought. How different? How different it is today. And Joel Miller says, "Look, we're in the age of Instagram now. Everybody seems to have a brand, or wants to have a brand, and wants to have a following." And that would have been unimaginable in the 1990s. But really what changed all that was the Internet, right? He says it was almost inevitable that people would have their own blogs and, and want to promote themselves in that way. Publishing changed. You could self-publish your book if you want. You didn't need a traditional publisher. You could get yourself out there and find followers. But it was not like that in the 1990s, at least till the end of the 90s when, when the Internet really took off. But he says back in the 1990s, broadcasting was at, you know, it was the top of the top. That was kind of the, maybe the end of the golden age of television. Seinfeld, Friends, they would have tens of millions of viewers for each episode. But he says every other sitcom did too, no matter how bad they were, because they were on TV and we just didn't have choices. And it's a little bit like that sometimes with, with other types of media as well, like, like radio, that if you've got a good time slot, and it was this way on TV too, it really doesn't almost matter if the content's good, you're going to get good ratings if you're in a good time slot. That's just the way it is. And so audiences, he says, were passive recipients of what the network programmers and advertisers wanted to get to you, what they wanted to communicate to you. 
gatekeepers in the media. They determined the message. They determined the messenger. But really what undercut all of that was the Internet. And so we see this, obviously, now. We see Twitter breaking news and people not really trusting mainstream media for a lot of different reasons in this day and age. But back in the 90s, it wasn't so. It wasn't so. So Miller says, quote, Klosterman's approach to the 1990s can't cover everything. Besides the occasional vignette, um, there's, no, there's no real talk in his book about the African-American experience, for example, um, but he talks about things like the Major League Baseball strike, uh, the steroid scandal, the presidency of Bill Clinton. And, and he says, in, in a weird way, this dynamic of authenticity helped Clinton survive all of his scandals because he says that he played the authenticity card better than anyone. I'm not sure about that, but he did get caught lying. Let's, let's face it. But um, he was very defiant in, in, in the face of scandal, and he didn't want to back down, didn't want to resign. Times times change, as Klosterman says, that's what times do. And just looking back at the 1990s through this lens of authenticity, it, it, it's, it's an intriguing look. It's an intriguing look. So I would really encourage you guys to sign up for Miller's book review. I'm not getting paid to say this or anything like that. I just think it's really cool. Check it out. It's a Substack uh, e-newsletter that you can get. You can look it up online. And I'll have to check out this book on the 90s by Klosterman. But was the 90s your favorite decade? Or maybe not. Maybe not. Is there another decade that really stands out to you? And if so, why? What has changed? Times change. Culture changes. It's not always for the better. It's not always for the better. As Klosterman says, times change because that's what times do. And it's interesting to look at the past through the lens of the present. But I want to know if there's a recent decade that really stands out to you. You can call in 888-914-9149. Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. We'll be right back after this break. It's been a while. It's been a while. The 90s. Seems like yesterday, but it really was a while ago now. Is that your favorite decade? If not, what was your favorite decade and why? What have we lost that we somehow need to recapture? 888 Let's go to John in Oswego, Illinois. Hi, John. Yes, hi, Kale. I really like your show, and I wanted to give my opinion on the, my favorite decade. It would be the, the 1980s, just a lot of great family mm -hmm. uh, cookouts on the patio and uh, also a lot of great Blackhawks games. They didn't win the Stanley Cup, but yeah. it was a lot of great games at Chicago Stadium. And uh, the Rolling Stones tours to start the decade in 81 and in 1989 to finish the decade, it was great. So that's that's my uh, two cents, so to speak, I'm putting in. Thanks. Well, yeah, John, you, you got it. And hang on for just a second. I, 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 I feel you on a lot of levels there. I'm actually – a child of the 80s. That was kind of the my formative years. I love the 80s. We do a lot of 80s references and, and songs, uh, rejoins on this show. You know, we've talked about this really since I came on Relevant Radio. So I, I thought I'd give a little love to the 1990s. But yeah, the 80s are where it's at. And I, I too remember a lot of great Chicago Blackhawk playoff rounds, especially against the Edmonton Oilers back in the day with Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier and all the uh, cast of characters. Tough team to beat. But yeah, the Chicago Stadium, the old Chicago Stadium, that's one stadium 
I wish I was able to see a game in, whether Bulls game or Blackhawks game, so loud, so iconic. And uh, so cool of you to bring that up, John. Really appreciate that. Okay. Thanks again, Kale. Okay. You, you got it, John. Thank you so much. That was John in Illinois. Let's go now to Tom, who's in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hi, Tom. Hello, Kale. Um, I, I wanted to share in uh, the early 90s, I'm 74 now, and I was dealing with uh, a lot of different life crises. Mm being a former Vietnam vet and mm. being in various professions. And I just want to say one of the best things ever happened to me was discovering the Catholic Church and wow. being exposed to the greatness of John Paul II. Now it opened my eyes. And, you know, mm. I thought I was in the driver's seat of life <laughs> working with the space shuttle program and a, wow. a, uh, on TV a bit. You know, it was a real ego-boosting thing, and uh, I became homeless for three years, uh, went up to Toronto, uh, Canada from L.A. to live. I didn't know where I was going, and then uh, later into Des Moines, Iowa, and I'm just living out of my car, and uh, and I wow. got exposed to a uh, basilica in uh, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, incredible place. And uh, he had some Benedictine brothers there. And being homeless, I, I uh, just one day walked in there and it started my journey to recovery from the horrific things I was going through. And uh, I remember I used to go to see the Lakers at the, the Forum down in L.A. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, the day he came to the Forum and I witnessed him on TV uh, when he came down to help that uh, and bless that young man with no arms and mm. he's playing a guitar on a feet yeah. and uh, an act of compassion. And, uh, boy, that really hit me. I was actually crying amongst my colleagues at work. And uh, it really jolted me. I, I, I grew up in the Mormon church. And uh, I was a Mormon when I even went to Vietnam in combat, and uh, uh, I came home with a lot of questions. I lived in Newport Beach at mm-hmm. the time, and I, uh, I had a lot of questions, but I went through life, a very, very difficult life, and it took wow. a while to, to open my eyes. But that, that wonderful man, Pope John Paul II, is uh, my favorite in the 90s. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, one of one of the many decades uh, in which he was active as Pope, and what a long reigning Pope he was, and what what an impression that he made on you and, and millions and billions, literally, of other of others and Saint John Paul the Great. That, that's an incredible story, Tom. And first of all, I want to say thank you. Hang on the line for a second, Tom. I want to say thank you first of all for your service, because I find that when it comes to Vietnam vets, people do not sometimes don't want to thank them for their service. Not that they had a choice about where they were sent, and but they signed up to uh, to serve America just like any other soldier would. So thank you for your service. And I think it's incredible. Tell me, I, I want to ask you about the space shuttle program. You said you worked on that as well? I was part of the, uh, out at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, Johnson Space Center in Houston, and then at the Cape down in Florida. I was part of the... Uh, 
Space Shuttle Rescue Recovery Team on multiple missions uh, and some wow. other uh, classified programs. Uh, but anyway, a, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, you, when you're a young man, you you think you walk on water, you're invincible, etc. You know, and God sometimes uses some really unexpected events in your life to uh, try to catch your attention. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Uh, a- absolutely. Church, I've lived all over the world. I just, up until recently, I had a stroke. I, I yeah, oh, did a lot of world travel still. I even lived abroad in some countries. But anyway, uh, yeah. it's I've always been alone in life, so <laughs> I <laughs> never really collect, connected. But I've been listening to relevant radio for... Uh, I don't know, three, four years. That's incredible. And, uh, That's great. I got back into RCIA here, our cathedral in La Crosse, mm. uh, because of my lifestyle as far as relocating, etc. I never finished it in Des Moines, Iowa. And if any of your listeners know about Monsignor Frank Chido in Des Moines, I'd mm. uh, like to hear from him. The man was just incredible. Just utterly incredible. Wow. Well, Tom, you, yeah. you've, you've you've lived an incredible life. This is this is an amazing journey, and from serving in Vietnam to the space shuttle program, and and your time in the forces to being homeless and traveling from Los Angeles to Toronto. I guess you kind of made it to the promised land. I'm only kidding. I live in Toronto, but uh, wow, what what a journey and into the Catholic Church from Mormonism into the Catholic Church. That that's incredible, and that that is that that. That is an amazing journey, and John Paul II was a huge, huge uh, key, a linchpin in that journey. I love it. I love it. Kay Richardson was a convert from Mormonism to Catholicism, and I interviewed her on the Faith Explained show as part of our series on Mormonism, and that that was an intri- That was one of our highest listened to programs ever. People were really keen to hear that story, so you can check that out uh, in the Faith Explained archives, I believe. I believe through relevantradio.com just kind of made me think of that. But Tom, thank you so much for calling in. That, that's amazing. That's an amazing call, Tom, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Let's go now to Fred in Denver. Hi, Fred. Well, hello. Uh, what what a uh, blessing it is to be able to uh, speak with you and uh, your listeners. I uh, uh, I want to share that, uh, like, because of who we're speaking on relevant radio and about the nineties. Uh, I live in Denver, and in mm. 93, we were blessed with um, World Youth Day. Mm. Even, though it started in the, it, even though it started in the 80s, I think 86, um, it was really growing momentum. Um, it was just such a blessing to be in the presence of John Paul and, and, and you know, His Holiness, a Pope right there, and then later to know that I was in the presence of a, of a saint. Mm-hmm. And you know the the whole community, the the spirituality. It was just like I can't explain the momentum. I'm even getting goosebumps right now wow. just, just talking about it. It it was uh, you know that 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 moment in my life will always stand out as as like almost a pinnacle right now. You know it it can always get better, but uh, that <laughs> it was that that's what I wanted to share about uh, my experience. You know, early '90s. Well, well, Fred, hang on the line here for a second, because you're right. God's not finished with you yet. There may be some some more mountaintop experiences for you yet to come. And, of course, 
Uh, Denver, of course, is no stranger to to the mountaintop experiences of another kind. But how, may I ask, Fred, how, how old were you in 93 when World Youth Day happened in Denver? Oh, I, uh, I was 20, 28. Okay, all right. 28. So, so yeah, still in so, your 20s. So I wasn't, I wasn't the, yeah, yeah. I was I wasn't a teenager, but uh, yeah, I was I was right in the midst of it all. So yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I I'm such a late bloomer. I feel like you know when I was in my 20s, I I was where I should have been when I was a teenager. You know, my 30s were like my 20s, and I, I tell you, uh, still young, still very young, 28. And and by the way, my my wife was also at World Youth Day in '93 in Denver, and I I agree with you that that was really where momentum started to. Who I mean. Other World Youth Days had taken place in Europe and, and other places, but but in '93 in Denver, I think for for North Americans that was that was really a, a watershed moment. And for me, my part of my journey back to the Catholic Church started in 2002 at World Youth Day in Toronto, and I got invited for, by some Catholic friends to attend the Way of the Cross there. And John Paul II was in Toronto for World Youth Day, and uh, big open air papal mass and it rained as it always seems to do with, with papal open air masses. But anyways, I, I did go to the way of the cross down university Avenue in Toronto. And that was a, an interesting experience for me because and I mentioned this before, I think on the show in the past that, um, the head Roman soldier who was in charge of, of course, in the passion play, crucifying our Lord was my future brother-in-law. And I remember seeing this guy thinking, man, this, this is a bad, bad dude, man. He's a powerful looking dude. And so I had to, I had to kind of fight my way through him. You know, he had to, he had to kind of grill me. And uh, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that too much. It was, it was, a, it was a scary experience. But when I started dating his sister, no, I'm only kidding, Joe. It was great. But um, and he, he's a good big brother. But yeah, World Youth Days were obviously seminal for a lot of people listening right now to Relevant Radio. And and Fred, I really want to thank you for calling in, man. That's that incredible. And another testimony to, to John Paul II. Let me ask you this, Fred, before you go. What do you think was the draw for young people with John Paul II? Because on, on the surface of things, why would this person be attractive to youth? He's older at that point. Maybe his health was starting to slip a little bit. Why do you think, other than his being the Pope, what do you think drew people to John Paul II so much? I, to, to, a quick answer to that without really putting a lot of thought of it, it, it is, a lot of what we are talking about right there is the cult of personality that said that this is authentic, and he mm. is love per, love personified, and this mm. is someone that cares about us, and he's a the true representative of Christ. I want to be like him. I think that was the draw. Mm, that's that's amazing, and I think I always feel like people saw in him. There, there's such a crisis of fatherhood. In, in the culture, I feel like people saw in him, uh, a lot of guys saw the father, a lot of women saw the father that they maybe never had, or the grandfather maybe that they never had or never got to, to experience in, in a certain sense. And that was uh, spiritual fatherhood, I think, was such a, a big charism of John Paul II. I, I really feel like that was the case. Hey, Fred, I really appreciate you listening. That was Fred in Denver, Colorado. For him in the 90s, his big, big moment was was, of course, World Youth Day in 1993 in Denver. Let's go to Patrick in Van Nuys, California. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Kale. How are you? Good, I didn't think I'd get on so quick, but thanks you for did. taking you my call. You made it. You made it. Well, yeah, the last caller was talking about uh, Pope St. John Paul II, and um, really got me thinking that the 90s were a pretty good decade for me. I, I was able to uh, go to to Rome and to see uh, 
uh, Pope John Paul mm. II at Castle Gandolfo. You've probably heard it. That was his summer residence. Yeah, the summer home. And I made uh, some other pilgrimages. I went to Medjugorje in 1991. Went to um, Knock, Ireland in '93. So it was uh, mm. it was a wonderful decade. And and that was my my trip to Medjugorje was kind of the starting point for my conversion. I was 33 at the time, and um, mm. you know, no looking back. Uh, it was um, it was a great decade. Wow, wow. You know, I, I, it's interesting that you mentioned Knock, Ireland, because. Uh, I believe that our own Drew Mariani was there recently on a pilgrimage tour, and and that that's that's something I, that's a place I hope I hope to go someday. My my roots are Irish, and uh, I really really want to want to get to to Ireland at some point at some point the Emerald Isle, uh, which sent so many missionaries out into the world. And, and interestingly enough, now missionaries are coming to Ireland. It's become pretty secularized, as a lot of places have been. That were. Once ubiquitously Catholic, it's no longer the case, sadly, but uh, hopefully it will be once again. Patrick, thank you so much for the call in Van Nuys, California. If you want to call in, 888-914-9149. Let's go to Chris in San Diego, California. Hi, Chris. Hey, Cal. Thanks for for putting me on. I I wanted to have a little fun. Um, So I had, just real quick, I had had two... uh, Two children born in the 80s, three in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to have some fun with a guy from Illinois who was commenting about the 80s. And I couldn't <laughs> believe it. He left off the 1986 Chicago Bears Super Bowl champion. Sweetest right. refrigerator, <laughs> the greatest five Hall of Fame guys on defense. How could you leave that off from the 1980s? It was a great time. Just wanted yeah. to say that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Ditka, Polish Yashich, the Bears. Da Bears. Of course, Swirsky superfans. We all know that skit from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, it, it absolutely. I think. I think arguably, and people can fight me on this, but I think the '86 Chicago Bears were the were the greatest team in NFL history. Tragically, they did lose that one game to Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins. But uh, the '86 Bears, man, tough to beat with that '46 defense, Buddy Ryan, my favorite player of all time, Jim McMahon, the punky QB. If you've seen the Super Bowl Shuffle, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, YouTube that if you haven't. It's uh, it's pretty classic. It's pretty classic. And, and, of course, the great sweetness, Walter Payton. That's right, yeah. So our previous caller was more of a hockey guy. I think he was talking about the Blackhawks. But, yeah, the Bears actually did win a championship uh, in, in that decade. And uh, hopefully many more to come. We'll see what happens in their new stadium in Arlington Park, which is going to be built. So they're leaving Soldier Field downtown. How about that? All right, let's go to Teresa in Covina, California. Hi, Teresa. Well, praise the Lord. I, too, I received my conversion in 1992. Okay. I was away from the church like for like 30 years, and I got to go to see uh, Pope John Paul and the the blue heart that opened up in, during the rain and the puffs of clouds coming out of it. It was just a marvelous time, and that's also um, just like, like the last, well, after my conversion, I discovered Divine Mercy, and I want to share with everyone that I do have a ministry with that, and to me, that that's the work of mercies. Um, mm. The center uh, has uh, 6,000 uh, little mercy, Divine Mercy cards, uh, and oh, wow. you can get them in Spanish or English, and you can also go to 100, 8 by 10, and they're only seventy nine ninety nine. And even the poorest of the poor can chip in and, and buy those, you know, get together, 
Well, Teresa, I want to hop in there. You know, thank you for spreading uh, devotion to the Divine Mercy. It's something we do also uh, every day here on Relevant Radio, and I uh, really appreciate any efforts to uh, to get that message out there. And people need to hear it. They, they really need a touch of mercy and forgiveness. Let's go quickly to Damon in Daly City, California. Hey, Damon, I know you've been on the line for a while. Thanks for holding on. Uh, what, what, what's up? Hey, uh, well, I'd like to comment about your heater problem last. Okay. But, um, <laughs> all of your callers mentioned John Paul II, uh-huh. and I uh, remember him saying three words. It was the same word. And the uh, young man from Nicaragua that lives in um, Missouri, he played the guitar with his feet. His name is Tony Melendez. Tony Melendez, to- that's right. Thank you for mentioning yeah, that. He played I, the gu- was- the, the guitar with his feet, and at the end of it, and he sang, and at the end of it, uh, the three words uh, that Pope John Paul II, it's not like he gave a philosophy on the Bible or anything. He said, Tony, Tony, <laughs> and, the, and, and everything with Tony, he had everything that makes you go out into the battle, into oh, the fiery furnace, and say, I can do this. I can do this. Yeah, with Christ, we can do this. Tony, Tony, Tony. That was another famous band from long ago. Well, listen, thanks for joining me today on The Kale Clark Show. Jim Schaefer produced Patrick A. Luck took your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy. <laughs>